Above All, Christ. That is the title of our sermon series, and today we're going to address, as I said earlier, what I think is probably the central passage of the book, the letter to the Colossians, uh, and perhaps the central passage in all of Scripture dealing with the supremacy of Christ. Why is he supreme? Before we get there, I want to remind you of this book. Uh, it's still early in the series. We're on week three. We're going to run all summer long. This book is where we are drawing our small group questions from, but it is also a book that has some commentary that goes with it, uh, questions and opportunities for you to respond. We're giving you these books. Well, that's not accurate. We're selling these books to you, but it's for only $5, which is half of the usual price, and you can uh, get them out here at the welcome desk as well. I really encourage you to get one, give you a chance to kind of build your resources and uh, dig just a little bit deeper as you go throughout the week and reflect on what we've talked about. Well, the, the word supreme is like a few words that we have in our language that I think there are difficulties with it because we use them so frequently that I, I think they have begun to lose their uh, impact to some degree. Uh, we go out for dinner and we have an awesome steak, or we have an awesome time with our friends, or we go to see an, an awesome movie. And I wonder, did that steak really fill me with awe, or did it just fill me really well and it was good? But we, we want to make sure people don't miss how much we liked something, right? Uh, we, we have, there's a commercial out right now that I think is really funny, and maybe it's because, you know, simple things and simple minds and all that connection, but I don't even know what the commercial's about, but there's a girl standing there that says, I literally misuse this word a billion times a day, and I just think that's really funny, because I hear people say stuff like that a lot. I mean... I literally did this, and I think, did you really? You really crawled up the side of that building, or whatever it was they said? But we're, we're exaggerating to make a point, and, and I, generally, I think we know that. The word supremacy is much the same way. Um, a few years ago, McDonald's so, sold a breakfast that they called their supreme breakfast. It was really just all their other breakfasts all put together in one, and so they called it supreme. Uh, you got a lot more. Costco sells a brand of diapers that describes the product as supreme. So clearly they are the best diapers on the planet. Here, this must be why. There's a wetness indicator. Now, I know I'm going to get my age, and maybe this is a little gross, but the wetness indicator when our kids were little was my fingers, right? Yep, time to change that thing. Um, the, it has a, a soft, breathable cover. There's even a pocket in the waistband, according to the description. What is that for their cell phone? I don't understand. <laughs> when my kids were in diapers, you had two choices. You got hugs or lovies, or if somebody had come up with a, a store brand by the time, that was great. Some of our peers were still using cloth diapers. That's how old my wife is. Um, <laughs> I'll pay for that later. Don't worry. All you did was pick a size, right? They'll hold up to 15 pounds, up to 24 pounds, which, by the way, I always thought was a bit optimistic. I never felt like they held that much, but... Uh, Supreme means 
greater than everything else. So if I have a supreme diaper, that means no other diaper on the whole planet can be this good. If I have a supreme pizza, that means there can't be another one. You know, what's funny about supreme pizzas is everybody has a supreme pizza, but that doesn't accomplish anything. Ours is the supremest of the supreme or something, they should say. When I have a supreme Savior, and I have a supreme Lord, that is a correct use of the term. And I want to talk with you today from Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at just these three verses, 15 through 17, and we're going to talk about why it is that Jesus is supreme. What are the things that qualify him to be supreme to have the supremacy because there are lots of religious leaders there are lots of of religions that hold up a particular person and say no this person is the most important or this person is significant for some reason or another and in the context of colossians and again we're i haven't spent a lot of time kind of piecing together the background of this but there was a philosophy, a religious philosophy going around in Colossae and in some of the surrounding areas that suggested that Jesus was not, in fact, God. He was one of kind of a succession of emanations from God that took him far away from, enough from God that he was still pretty good and maybe even still God-like, but he could be human and it wouldn't be a problem because they said God and flesh can't be together because flesh is inherently evil. So kind of that's the synopsis of it. And so when, when Paul wrote to Colossae, to this city and, and these, this church that was meeting there, he, he had never personally been there to teach them, but he said, listen, you guys have got to be careful of this teaching. Jesus is in fact the one who has the supremacy. He is highest above Everyone, And I want to give you four reasons why I think that's true today. And we're just going to kind of pick these verses apart a little bit at a time. So kind of come with me. Verse 15, the first thing that qualifies Jesus to be supreme is that he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus makes God visible. That's pretty profound, right? I mean, nobody ever claims to say, oh, I saw God. I went and saw God. That's just an unreasonable claim. What does the image of God look like? What does that mean? There are thing, two things, really, that talk about it in relation to Jesus. One is that he is a, a likeness. He helps us to see God. Isn't it an amazing thing? In how many religions of the world do you have God coming down here because he so longs for people to trust him and believe in him that he would come and take on flesh so you could see him? That's, it's pretty astonishing. I think this says a lot about how much God wants to have a relationship with us, right? He is a likeness. More importantly, he is a manifestation of who God actually is. It isn't that, that Jesus somehow looks like God. God is spirit, the scriptures teach. So, so we can't 
We can't necessarily go and look at God and shake his hand, but when Jesus came, he became manifest. God revealing who God was completely in his nature. Everything about who Jesus was is who God is. He is the image of God. Man cannot see God, right? I mean, that's, that's true throughout all of the scripture. In Genesis 32, after Jacob had wrestled with this angel, the angel of the Lord, a, a, an occasion when Jesus came and became visible on earth prior to what we have recorded in the New Testament, when, when he did that and wrestled with Jacob... Jacob was fearful, he says. He named the place the face of God, for he said, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Everybody knew you can't look at God. Why can't you look at God? Because God is absolutely perfect in holiness. He is, his glory is so vivid that for a mortal, sinful human being to look on God means death. You cannot do that. Jacob knew that and was terrified. God specified that to Moses. When Moses, in Exodus 33, said, let me see you, God said, I can't let you see me. You wouldn't be able to take it. You would die. Man cannot see me and live. But yet, of course, men saw Jesus. What do we know about Jesus that when they saw him? John 1, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Jesus came as God with flesh on. Hebrews chapter 1 the first verse says God has spoken to us in various times and in various ways through the prophets and in written scripture. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And verse 3 says this, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is not just like God. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. When you looked at, when you talked with Jesus, you were speaking with God. He was happy to acknowledge that, by the way. When his disciples in John 14 were concerned about what's happening and, and where are you going and all of that conversation, one of them said, show us the Father and it'll suffice us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, Philip? And you still say, show us the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus made God visible. The second reason Christ has the qualification to be called the one with supremacy is that Christ is above creation. The second part of verse 15 He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, I want to make sure you understand this word firstborn because it is important in Scripture. It does, in fact, many times mean born first, the first one to be born. We have four children. One of them is our firstborn. But there's way more to this term than just 
the first one in a succession of children. And it means more than that with Jesus for several reasons. And I want to give them to you because I think it's, it's important to understand that when we say he's the firstborn of creation, it doesn't mean he was the first one to be created. Because if that's true, then these, these people in Colossae, in, these, in this area of Asia that are saying, oh, he is just one of a number of emanations from God, then they may be right. If he is a... He is a creation of God, like the angels, then he's not the one who is supreme, and therefore we don't have to follow what he says. So let me give you four reasons why uh, I believe this word does not, in the case of Jesus, refer to simply firstborn. There's more to it. One, John 1, 1 and 2. In fact, we, we need to go there for a second because this passage of Scripture is super important. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, there are groups of people, religious uh, philosophies even to this day, who will come to your door and will say to you, well, yes, I know what that says, but that just means he is a God. It just means he's God-like. But that's not what this means. In the beginning was the word. I don't want to go all, all Greek nerd on you, but that word was, and we talked about this previously uh, with, with another word, that word was is, is in a form that says it was, it was an ongoing thing. When there was a beginning, the word was already ongoing, okay? He, didn't, he wasn't the first thing in the beginning. When there was a beginning, the word already was. He was with God, and he was God. And this is a passage where down in, in verse 14, it specifies who we're talking about here. We're talking about Jesus. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory is of the only Son from the Father, the Son of God is to be identified with the word in these verses. He is not a God, he is God. He was already there when creation took place. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6, God specified there that all of the angels, all of God's angels would worship the Son. Nobody is to be worshipped except God, right? God is identifying the Son as God, saying all of the angels of God, even, will worship him. Let me give you just one more. There is a different word for the first one created, the first one that was made. If, if Paul was trying to tell us that Jesus was the first one made in creation and then all the rest of creation was made, there was a whole different word he would have used, not firstborn. So what does firstborn mean then? If we know that it doesn't refer to primarily in the case of Jesus about the fact that he was the first one to come into existence, and what does it mean? It is primarily about rank. This word has to do with rank, and I was looking at a few things even earlier this morning about this from the Scripture. There are a number of places in Scripture where 
firstborn has everything to do with rank and virtually nothing to do with birth order. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau, twins, who were, were trouble from day one. They even wrestled and fought before they were born in their mom's womb. And Esau was born first in order, and then came Jacob. But Jacob ended up receiving the inheritance and was treated as the firstborn in terms of the inheritance of his father, though it was out of order. And it's interesting, if you start paying attention to it as you're reading Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, it seems God delighted in switching birth order and taking someone from this area. Judah was, what, the fourth of the sons of Israel, and yet it was through his line that the Messiah would come. There's, there's this constant tension that within culture, the person who was born first got the inheritance, but many times God superseded the actual birth order and said, no, this one will be treated as firstborn. Israel is referred to as God's firstborn. It certainly wasn't the first nation ever to exist, but it was God's firstborn. In Psalm 89, 27, God promised to make David the firstborn of the kings of the earth. Obviously, that wasn't true. He wasn't the first king ever to be born, but he would become the first in rank and thus the son of David as well. This phrase, Christ is the firstborn has to do with his status, his rank above creation. He is supreme. There's a third reason Christ is supreme. Verse 16, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and for him. He is the supreme one because Christ is the creator. All things were made by him. Now, aside from the obvious fact that if all things were made by him, he couldn't have been made first because, I mean, you can't make yourself. All things were made by him, but he specifies all of the possibilities, whether they're visible or invisible, whether they're things we can see or things we can't see. And I mean, in that, think even atoms and germs and bugs and the, the, the things that, that are below the level of human vision that we in our day and age take microscopes and we can see them, but they are invisible to the human eye. All of those things were created by Jesus, whether they were thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Again, this is a shot at these people who said Christ is one of a number of emanations that got him far enough away from God that it wouldn't impugn the character of God if he became flesh and all of this. He wasn't one of those. He created all of the spiritual authorities that there are. And as a side note, may I say, that's one of the reasons you don't have to be afraid of Satan. You don't have to be afraid of his host of demons. You don't have to be afraid of spiritual warfare. We spent four weeks talking about spiritual warfare. One of the things you surely do not have to do 
if you are in Christ, is be afraid of spiritual warfare because Christ created all of those things. He created everything, material, immaterial, natural order, spiritual order. Verse 3 of John 1, we didn't read on that far, but it says this, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews 1, verse 10, of the Son, God says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Jesus created everything. It was made through him, and those last two words are really important, for him. Jesus is the purpose of all creation. He is why creation happened. The longer I walk with Christ, the longer I am a child of God, the more I study the scriptures, the more I realize a couple of things. One, nothing is about me. God did not create people because he wanted people to have a shot or anything like that. God didn't create people because he was lonely. The, the whole doctrine of the, the Trinity, the fact that there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they already had relationship. And they're, they're, the Trinity is perfect in and of itself. It didn't need the fellowship and the encouragement and the worship of mankind. God created man for his purposes. Everything owes its existence to Jesus. He is therefore Lord over it. He owns it by right of creation. It is not about you. It's not about me. It is about Christ. That's why we are here. When you make something, when you put a patent on something, you own it. And nobody else can make anything just like it. I was reading the other day about the whole thing with Apple and Samsung. And Apple says, oh, no, they made a phone that looked like our phone. And they've transgressed the patent. And Samsung said, no, we didn't. And a judge ruled in favor of Apple, and Samsung, no, that's no, that's still not right. So Samsung took it to another judge who said, you know, you're right. You owe them even more money than you lost in the first part of the suit. So <laughs> Samsung is kind of wishing they had just said, fine. But it's all about patents, right? Down to what this thing looks like. Jesus made everything. Therefore, he has the patent to creation. He owns it. He is the purpose for our existence. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, We do not live to ourselves, but to him who for our sake died and was raised. Jesus is the reason you're here, and he is the purpose for which you should live. The last thing that verse 17 reminds us of, that qualifies Jesus to be supreme is that Christ holds creation together. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's, that's pretty powerful. Science recognizes that there's a delicate balance. right? If, if, if the earth was any closer to or further away from the sun, we'd be in serious trouble, right? If... The moon were any closer or further away from the earth. 
there would be catastrophic results. And yet people continue to try and tell us, well, it just happened that way. I was reading just a week or so ago in preparation for this, some, some scientist that was explaining why atoms have no business staying together. Why the positively charged this and the neutral that, and you know, I, I don't know enough about science, but I do know this, it was a scientist who was not a follower of Christ who said, there's something holding them together, we just don't know what. He needs to read Colossians 1.17. Jesus holds the atoms together. If it were not for the sustaining power of Jesus, everything would just fly apart. He holds it together literally. Verse 3 of Hebrews uh, chapter 1 says, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. It stays together because of him. You want to you know why scientists can figure out the laws of nature and how things work? It's because it always works the same, because Jesus makes sure that happens. You want to know why medical personnel can examine your body and figure out what's wrong with you and what they can do to help make it better if something's wrong? It's because your body was made to work a certain way, and it works that way all the time. Jesus holds it all together. You want to know why you woke up this morning? Because Jesus gave you breath. Acts chapter 17, can I, can I read a few verses for you? Paul was walking through uh, the city of Athens. And uh, as he walked through, it was, a, it was a people that were very religious, super religious, perhaps similar to our culture in many respects. Very spiritual, very religious. They had lots of things that they worshipped, and they would set up... Uh, images and uh, various uh, things to remind them of all of these different gods that they wanted to make sure to worship. Paul, I'm going to start in verse 22 of Acts 17. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. They had so many altars, they even had one just in case they missed one. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. Christ holds creation together. Whether people realize it or not, whether you are aware of it or not, every time you breathe without having to think about breathing, it is because Jesus is giving you life and breath. He does it for everybody, whether they recognize it or not. And here's what's interesting to me. That's not a threat. 
It's not that, that Jesus stands in heaven overlooking his creation and saying, you better walk the line or I'm just going to snatch your breath away. It's not a threat. It's grace. He gives us life and breath and allows us to live. What is the end of that passage I just read? So that we might seek him. The intention of God letting us continue on even in our sin is that we might seek him. It's always about the grace of God. It's never a threat. Let me spend a little time with some of these thoughts I want to give you to take home. The first is this. Jesus is supreme over all creation, including you. We do not like that. There's something in us that doesn't want somebody else to be in charge. There's something about us that from the time we're little, we just don't want somebody else telling us what to do. What's the phrase little kids say when it's not mom or dad? You're not the what? You're not the boss of me. Listen, Jesus is the boss of you. Whether you, whether you follow him as one of his disciples or not, Jesus is the boss. He is the one who has supremacy. He is supreme over all of creation. So the right response is to live in submission to his authority. If you've never trusted in Christ as your only hope of salvation... Whether you are aware of it or not, you are living in rebellion against God. The Bible says that Christ died for us when we were his enemies. You can be an enemy of God and not realize it. You don't have to carry open hostility or, or conscious animosity toward God to be his enemy. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you're an enemy of God. And the way to respond to the supremacy of Christ is not to buck it, because it doesn't work. Throughout all of human history, people have tried to, to buck his authority and say, nope, I'm going to do it my way. And they never win. Satan tried. When he was an angel of God living in heaven over all the other angels, both Isaiah and, and Ezekiel talk about this, he decided... At one point in time, you know what? I'm tired of just being top dog among the angels. I'm going to go up to heaven. I'm going to uh, make sure I'm above every other creature in heaven. And in fact, I'm going to be like the Most High. Even Satan, uh, Lucifer, had enough sense not to say I'm going to be greater than God. He, he knew there wasn't anything greater than God. He said, I'm going to be equal to God. And what did God say? Well, in point of fact, he said, nope, and threw him out of heaven, and a bunch of angels rebelled with him. Not even the most exalted angel in the order of the uh, invisible hosts of heaven was able to supersede the authority of God, and yet we think we can. Psalm 2 talks about how the, the nations of the earth, the kings of the earth, get together and they rage and they're like, we're going to throw his bands off to us. Can, can I read that for you? I hope that's the right psalm because that just came to my mind. 
and it would be embarrassing to have to keep looking for it while you're watching. Whoops. Now I've got to find Psalm 2. There, oh, it is the right one. It's always nice when you do that. Okay, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. God's not going to tell us what to do. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You know, in, in one very serious sense, we should be fearful of the wrath of God against sinners. But this picture to me is telling <laughs> the rulers of the earth getting together saying, forget it, we're not listening to what God has to say. We're in charge. We're going to make ourselves important. We're going to make a name for ourselves. It's been happening since all the way back at the Tower of Babel, and it still happens today. And God sits in heaven thinking, really? He laughs at them because it is so ludicrous that humanity would think, I just won't do what God wants me to do. We're going to be in charge. I'm going to call the shots. I'm going to make the decisions. And God laughs at that. It is ludicrous because in comparison to the one who is supreme, we are so tiny, and yet we think so much of ourselves. If you've never trusted in Christ, I plead with you today, trust in him as your only hope of salvation. You're not in charge, and you stand as an enemy of God. He's giving you life and breath day after day with the intention that you would seek him as Paul said to those Athenians. I plead with you to do that today. And for you who are followers of Jesus, and I know that that's many of you, I want to plead with you again today to honor him as Lord of your life. It's so desperately important. Just a page or two further to the front in my Bible is Philippians chapter 2. I want to read this passage of scripture. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord someday. Everybody lives forever. Once you're born, you will live forever. The only question is where and under whose dominion. And if you submit yourself to Christ as your Lord and Savior, while you're still alive on this earth, you get to live forever in heaven under the lordship and authority of the God of the universe, Jesus. Acknowledging him as Lord. If you refuse to do that and you die prior to that, you will still acknowledge that he's Lord, but you'll spend eternity separated from him. Everyone will acknowledge that. I plead with you to do that before you die. So how does that fit? What do we do with that? I don't want it to just be all about your theology. I hope you you understand a little further about who Jesus is and why he's the one with supremacy. But how does that fit at work? If Christ is Lord of my life, does that change how I work? Does that change how industrious I am at work? Does it change my, my integrity as to when I'm at work and, and the boss is not around, not watching? Do I, do I work more faithfully and diligently then when, when he is there than when he's not there? What about my, my finances? Have I submitted my finances to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Do I spend my money in a way that acknowledges he gets first place? Am I faithfully giving to the ministry of my local church? Am I I using the resources God has given me life and breath and health and strength to be able to earn? Am I honoring him first? And beyond just whether I'm giving to the church or not, am am I faithfully using what God has entrusted to me, acknowledging that it's his? The reason we give, the reason we tithe is not because God needs our money. It's an acknowledgement that God owns 100% of it. I'm just going to use 90% for myself. It's it's an attitude. It's a posture thing. How about in my relationships? In my relationship with my wife or my relationship with the this woman I'm falling in love with or this man I'm falling in love with? What, what about my relationship with my children or my siblings or my parents? Does the lordship of Christ affect my relationships? Every time I act in a way that puts me first, I deny the lordship of Christ over my life because he has not given me that as an option. I am to love my wife in the same way Jesus loved the church which means I sacrifice everything that could be important to me. He didn't even count hanging on to being exactly like God in every possible respect as important. Instead, he came here to die and pay the penalty for my sins so I could be part of his bride. If I don't love my wife that way, I am, I am functionally denying the lordship of Christ in my life. He is supreme, but I'm not acting like he is. It affects so many things. Maybe my choices of entertainment. How often even, or how I entertain myself. Listen, God God has given us all things to enjoy. 
Paul told Timothy, make sure that wealthy people know that he has given you all things to enjoy. Nothing wrong with being wealthy and having lots of money. There's something wrong with trusting in that money rather than trusting in the Lord. Nothing wrong with enjoying yourself. God said, take a day a week and rest. Take a day a week and and have some rest. But when I'm being entertained, when I'm enjoying leisure, am I acknowledging the lordship of Christ in my life? It's it's not a list of, of rules of where I should go or what I should do. It's none of that. It's an attitude of my heart. Have I acknowledged Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life? He is the one with supremacy. How am I letting that filter down into my daily activities? That's what's really important, right? I hope, uh, I hope as we uh, sing in just a little bit that you will uh, have a, maybe an increased alertness to uh, the fact that Christ is supreme. He is Lord of all, not just because he's earned that right, but because he made everything and he owns it. He is the one who has the supremacy. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the truth of this scripture. It's a little overwhelming to me to handle a, a text of scripture that exalts Christ in such a significant way. And I'm, I'm praying that uh, your glory will have been seen sufficiently and that we will recognize the, the reality of who Jesus is, the, the supremacy of Christ. You are Lord of all. Lord, I... I I acknowledge that today here before these folks, and I know that many of them are are saying that quietly in their hearts right now. And I pray that as we sing here in just a minute, it'll be a, a helpful reminder to us of just how incredible uh, our Savior is.